Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies and TV. In this episode we're going to be looking at films that are so bad they're just bad. But first, we are live after three practice runs doing this. That's not strictly true, four practice runs. No one's heard episode zero and they never will. They never ever will. It's going to be digitally burned in a uh, in a bucket in the rain before uh, a Western Union man comes and gives us a letter from the past. This is like the famous two Top Gear episodes that were shot and no one could ever see, not even James May. <laughs> yes, yes. But we're now live, we're now on Apple Podcasts, we're now on Stitcher, we're now on about half a dozen platforms, we're working on Google, and I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who's helped us get to this point. Um, a special thank you to... Andrew from the Motoring Podcast, uh, who's on Twitter at Crack Windscreen. Wholly recommend their podcast, but he's been brilliant helping us with setup and with technique and with all sorts of recommendations and dropping knowledge left, right and centre. So big thank you to Andrew and big thank you to everybody who heard our earlier episodes, who's given us feedback and thoughts and constructive criticism and hopefully we'll be taking all of that on board and going for bigger and better things in the future. Anyway, we can't stop this episode without carrying on a little bit from the last episode because we are gripped by Calvin and Hobbes' fever. And Marty, you actually went to see the new Fast and the Furious film. I did. Give us a give us a very compressed review. Okay, so this is Fast and Furious colon Dawn of Justice. Uh, I mean, Hobbes and Shaw, not Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, is this one Citizens on Parade? <laughs> I don't know. I paid actual cash money to see this in the IMAX in my local cinema, uh, and I can sum it up in three words. Big, dumb, fun. <laughs> I Certainly for the first half of the film, I laughed my way through it. It's insane fun. The plot is absolutely ridiculous. I won't even attempt to recap it, but there are just moments for petrol heads that you will love. It's... Even though it's not strictly a Fast and Furious movie, it's like Fast and Furious Presents, it's an offshoot, it's a side project. There's still some of the Fast and Furious um, themes in there where people who need to go a bit faster stamp on the accelerator that they weren't pressing at all. Uh, when that's Jason Statham and McLaren 720S in London traffic, what should happen is he rear-ends the bus that's in front of him. But what actually happens is he goes a little bit faster and steers to the right. Um, I want that 720S. It's a lovely colour as well. It's this like metallic, dark, bluey grey. It's gorgeous. And whoever's doing the sound, props to you because it sounds like a McLaren. You haven't kind of overdubbed some Chevy engine over the top. But yeah, there's that classic thing of you want to go a bit faster, find another gear that you haven't had before. <laughs> um, the bad guy's lair is the McLaren Technology Centre. Really? Yeah, it genuinely is. I practically <gasps> whooped in the cinema when... I saw it on the screen. It's a slightly shanky Photoshop job, effectively. Uh, and I was—I I did a double take just to check. It is the MTC, but they've kind of moved it from its kind of Wokingish estate position to some mountains in Austria, I think. Uh, so it, just it, down the M4. It, it looks proper Bond villain thing. We've all joked about the MTC looking like a Bond villain's lair. Well, they've actually used it in a movie as a Bond villain's lair, and all of the kind of appley, glossy white interior is the bad guy's interior lair. I, I was, 
yeah, I was kind of jumping up and down in the seat when I saw that going, oh God, this is brilliant. Because <laughs> I'm that kind of nerd. There's, oh, what else What else was really enjoyable about it? I think the, the whole buddy-buddy dynamic starts off, and then they become mates and they trust one another and all that kind of thing. And they do some horrendous retconning of uh, Jason Statham's character to turn him from being a bad guy into a good guy. Uh, we'll kind of forgive that. But he still killed Han, justice for Han. <laughs> I'm not going to let that go. It's full of some of the most incredible action, certainly in the first half. I felt it kind of tailed off in the second half a bit, but the first half just hugely entertaining, utterly mindless. I can't recommend it enough if you just want some brain out <laughs> fun, see all your ticket money up on the screen, go and see it. Fantastic, fantastic. And as that came out, I shared a link on our uh, Twitter feed at AutoMoviePod about a news article from the Wall Street Journal. I've put a, I'll, we'll put a link into the show notes for this to the Twitter event because the Wall Street Journal is a paywall, boo, but it basically outlines contractually that all the main actors in the Fast and the Furious movies have stipulated in their contract who wins which fights, who never loses how they kind of balance one person getting their ass kicked with another person getting their ass kicked. And my God, of all the nonsense that goes into Hollywood movie contracts, you know, the ands and the in introducings and all the other things, it's worth it. I would recommend going and look at the Twitter feed as well because it, it extracts some of the, the paragraphs where you just think some agent has sat down and said, yes, The Rock, as well as being very sweaty, will fight in this film but he can't lose. And some of the agents have gone, well, if he's not going to lose, then we can't lose either. And it it's just bonkers insane. And for one last piece of Fast and Furious content before we leave this behind for now, until probably, well, until Fast 10 comes out, I guess, the good guys at Carfection have done a second episode of their At The Drive-In series, whether George Collado and Drew Stern are going through some of the action from Tokyo Drift and doing a sort of stunt analysis, um, precision driving look at what goes into the film. It's about half an hour long. If you are into that sort of geekery, well, well, worth a watch. And here endeth Fast and the Furious for probably another 12 months. Or until we run out of films to talk about. Yes, and until we want to do a Fast and the Furious special at some point. It is coming. We don't know when. I think I've had enough of Fast and the Furious content for the moment. I have watched quite a few of the movies recently for this. Uh, and fun though Hobbs and Shaw was, let's leave it behind for a bit. I don't like to live my life a quarter mile at a time. <laughs> Moving on to something a lot slower and a lot, uh, a lot more considered, shall we say. A film's come out this week called The Art of Racing in the Rain. And somebody flagged this up to me only with the title. And I knew nothing else about it until I read a review in The Observer. And it wasn't glowing. So basically, quickly, the premise of, of the film is uh, Milo Ventimiglia, who was Peter Petrelli in Heroes. Yes. He is an aspiring race car driver, not Formula One, as some of the reviews have said, but he drives in the IMSA WeatherTech Championship for Turner Motorsport. And he has a dog called Enzo, whose inner monologue is voiced by a very whiskey and cigar-laden Kevin Costner. And we'll put a link to the trailer in the show notes, because it is somehow indescribable that 
they've put that story with car racing. And when you look at the credits, I think Patrick Dempsey is a producer on it. Jeff, I want to say Jeff Zwart. Zwart? Yeah. Yeah, he's um, a second unit director of photography and director. The Observer gave it one star, and it looks just like a bizarre telling of a story to set against the IMSA series until you watch the trailer. And you should, because at one point there comes up with a card that says, from the studio that brought you, Marley and me. And your heart will either sink at that point, or you'll just nod and go, right. So is this a studio that specializes in dog-themed movies? <laughs> I would love to think so. Does, you know, does, does Enzo die at the end? I haven't read the book. I think this is based on a book. It um, is based on a book. It, uh, it muses on reincarnation, sports psychology, custody issues, and brain cancer. Oh, and let's have the whole thing narrated by Kevin Costner playing a dog. <laughs> this sounds like some Hollywood exec got shit-faced one night <laughs> and saw a book on a coffee table and went, oh, I should make a movie of that. <laughs> and so they have. I, th I think we found between us, The Observer gave it one star, Empire gave it two. Yeah, I think, I think so. The Guardian gave it three, but I've seen a few people on social media from the car world who have gone, I don't care, I loved it. I'm guessing they are also dog people. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't a, I'm a dog person. I'll, I will give it a watch, but I will wait for TV. And I will wait for you to watch it. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, right. Which brings us which brings us nicely onto our theme. Yeah, this is... It, it could theme. be... If it's a terrible movie, this is going to be in a future entry of this series of movies that are so bad that they are bad. Brackets. But still, we secretly kind of love them. Close brackets. <laughs> yeah, so I've had this movie in my head for a very long time. It's a movie called Driven. It was made in 2001, directed by Rennie Harlan, who brought us such classics as Die Hard 2, Die Harder, uh, and Deep Blue Sea, which has the amazing scene where Samuel L. Jackson gets eaten by a shark halfway through a very Samuel L. Jackson-y type of speech. It's the single best move moment in a very bad movie. Uh, so his, his credentials are mm, middling, to say the least. I quite like Die Hard 2, but he's he's not a brilliant filmmaker. And he teamed up with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> yeah, he teamed up with Sylvester Stallone way back in 2001 to make a movie about racing cars. They wanted to make a movie about Formula 1, and Bernie Eccleston told them to get stuffed. I think the story in all of the trades went that they, you know, Formula One teams are very secretive and they couldn't get the access and so, oh, we'll go and make a movie about Champ Car. But I think Bernie just went sling your you lot. You don't think Bernie said, we'll do it for a hundred million dollars? Quite possibly. Um, yeah, even Hollywood haven't got enough money for Bernie Eccleston. But anyway, they uh, wanted to make a movie about Formula One. They couldn't, so they went to the then still pretty good Champ Car series. I think at that point, Champ Car was riding high. There was some great racing yeah. drivers in it. It was, at that point, I don't remember watching IndyCar. I watched Champ Car. So I have no idea if Champ Car was doing better than IndyCar, but that's by the by. They went to film Champ Car instead, and they don't mention it in the film as being Champ Car. They just throw up a title card at the start of the movie that says, with these following stats, 900 million spectators, 250 miles an hour, 20 drivers, one championship. That's the first frame of the movie, and already there are problems. 900 million, <laughs> 900 million viewers. 
I'm pretty sure even Formula One can't lay claim to those kinds of numbers, even if you take it as an aggregate across the entire season. Even the Indy 500, I don't know, for the last 10 years, might struggle to pull in 900 million viewers. Um, I'm sure some US listeners are going to write in and write in. They don't do that. Some US listeners are going to <laughs> tweet in and tell me I'm an absolute idiot and the last Indy 500 drew in 10 billion viewers. But it seems like a pretty big figure, especially back in 2001. It's got a sort of story that's very soapy with personalities. So there are drivers with girlfriends and fiancés and the girlfriends get swapped between other fiancés and there's drivers with ex-wives who are married to their friends and it's all just crap. The story's absolute shit. But I came across this film on, I guess, Channel 4 way back. It was one of these things that was on late at night and I watched it because it had cars in it and I kind of liked it. Even though it's bad, I kind of liked it mainly because it's got racing cars in it and anything with racing cars on the television made by Hollywood and therefore as we've covered before you know glossily lit and low camera angles and things happen at magic hour I kind of sucker for that I'm kind of a sucker for it so I gave it a watch and then I hunted down an absolutely outrageously priced DVD import back in 2001 uh, and watched it a few more times and realized that yes it really is terrible but there's a couple of moments that really make it Worth a single watch. No more than a single watch for, for non-masochists among you. But there's there's a real joy to the way they film actual champ car stuff. And it, this mm. goes back to lots of these Hollywood racing things where they, they get a deal with whoever the race series is, the promoter, and they're able to come in and film just before a race happens or during a practice session. So they get that very similitude of an actual paddock with actual racing drivers and team personnel bustling around that just happens to have a Hollywood actor like Sylvester Stallone walking through the middle of it like he's not Sylvester Stallone. As an aside, Sylvester Stallone is a washed-up racing driver I kind of buy, except he's still pretty built, and I can't see a racing car that would actually fit him. No, not even a Mansell spec McLaren would uh, take him. No, that's true. And Mansell was pretty tubby by the time he got into that 95 McLaren. <laughs> that's pissed <laughs> off all the Mansell fans. <laughs> so this movie kind of takes place across a single season of this champ car, stroke F1, stroke fictional racing series. And we are treated to Basil Exposition once more, much like Rush. They use... Uh, commentators to kind of fill in the blanks of the story and make up for some truly dreadful screenwriting. Um, but it's not a path, a film commentator from the best British archives. This is your full on American cheese ball commentary. Uh, and they are unable to refer to any driver without prefixing them, whether or you know, if they're German, are they a rookie? Are they previous race winner they have to give you a tiny little soundbite before they tell you who the driver is and they explain everything they explain why they're weaving on the track well that's to warm up their tires so that they don't go off on the first <laughs> corner it's full of that kind of stuff and the hero of the piece i say hero is a rookie driver by the name of jimmy Bly. Take a note of those initials because I think they're quite important he is referred to in the commentator as rookie sensation jimmy Bly. They are unable to refer to him by just his name. He is always rookie sensation Jimmy Bly. <laughs> he wins some races, then something gets in his head and he starts not winning races and his team boss gets all worried and brings in a mentor in the form of a washed up old racing driver who used to drive for his team in the shape of Sly Stallone. 
Jimmy Bly's team boss is played by Burt Reynolds, which automatically lends this some proper Petrolhead movie cred. He's still got a moustache. It's a bit thinner. He's a bit grey, but he's still Burt Reynolds. Um, his character's in a wheelchair. I think they lifted that idea from F1. He's meant to be playing a sort of Frank Williams-y type character. He seems a little warmer than Frank Williams. He's not quite so bitter and twisted. But it's very clear to anyone with a even a passing knowledge of F1 where they got these ideas from. Um I've read reviews that say that the character of Jimmy Bly is supposed to be a mixture of Heinz Harold Frentzen and Mika Hakkinen, and that's all just horseshit because the guy's initials are JB, he looks like Jensen Button, they made this series the year after Jensen Button had his pretty good, I'm not going to say stellar, but pretty good debut season for Williams, Mm. and it just felt especially when I first watched it, it just felt like they went, ah, oh, there we go. We'll just, well, can't use the word Jensen. That's a bit too obvious. We'll just use Jimmy because that's a good all around American name. And well, what begins with B? Bly. That'll do. It's a terrible <laughs> movie. Yeah, it's a terrible movie name. But anyway, so he's got this mentor now in the shape of Sly Stallone who's supposed to help him get his head together. Um, more F1 connections. The main protagonist of the movie is a driver called Bo Brandenburg. As if you couldn't tell from his surname, he's German. The actor playing him is a guy called Till Schweiger, who's pretty good and I've seen him in lots of other movies. He's a bit of a journeyman, but he does a good job with a pretty thinly sketched character. But he's meant to be Michael Schumacher. Let's not beat about the bush. He's meant to be Michael Schumacher. He races like Michael Schumacher. He talks like Michael Schumacher. He's meant to be you know, the German bad guy. And he kind of plays it to the hill. They they ease off his character later on, but it's it it's also stolen from F1. It's also clearly trying to be like F1, except it isn't. There's all sorts of things to to hate about this movie. I actually started writing a list of good and bad points in my notebook. Uh, and I'm going to go through some of the bad points first before I come to the good stuff. So <laughs> anytime any car hits anything in a race in this movie, it flies up into the air about 200 feet and sheds all of its parts over an enormous area. Crashes happen with monotonous regularity because everybody knows the only reason why we watch racing is for the crashes. So anytime a car clips a barrier, it flies up in the air, all its bodywork falls off, and then it lands with a smash on the ground, and yet the driver doesn't then snap his back and have his career ended. He just kind of gets out and shakes his head. <sighs> all right, I get it. You need to have some cool action sequences. But it's always a mixture of practical stuff where they've made a sort of ladder frame chassis and stuck some fiberglass body on the top and some horrendous CG that could have been lifted out of a terrible computer game where the car kind of flies up towards the camera, which is looking down at the track. And it's just hateful. It didn't need to be there. So lots of crashes. There's a crash where a car mysteriously ends up in a lake. And there's no Pedro de la Rosa to save anyone either. So the drivers have to stop, turn around and drive back along the track against the flow of traffic, because that's a thing that you're supposed to do, and then pull off, do a bit of rapid off-roading to the side of the lake, still in your race car, hop out and go and save the other driver who's in this lake full of water, which is mysteriously on fire, even though it's water. (laughs) There's a lot about this movie that you could just tear into there's a bizarre synchronized swimming scene because the actress who plays the love interest used to be an olympic standard synchronized swimmer and she's very good at synchronized swimming she's not very good at acting (laughs) i've forgotten about this but it's just smack bang in the middle of the movie there's some synchronized swimming because they went what do we got Ah, 
oh, you know, she can do some synchronized swimming. We'll do that. It's supposed to be a distraction for the driver who's staring at his laptop at the side of the pool instead of looking at the gorgeous woman in the pool, but mm, not good. There's car-to-car radio, which is a thing that I think everyone would benefit from, frankly. The ability for a teammate to radio his other teammate and tell him to block the guy behind. I quite like the idea of that, but it's never been available in any race series ever, to my knowledge. I did some gigging in this. I don't think they've ever been, there's ever been a race series where you've been able to have car-to-car radio to your teammate. There's you know, pit-to-car radio, car-to-pit radio, and then the kind of telemetry where you used to have, you've got car-to-pit, but there also used to be an F1 pit-to-car. I remember a Monaco F1 race where they managed to fix a problem with David Coulthard's McLaren, which was leaking oil somehow, and they fixed that with you know, data sent to the car, told it to do a thing, and it didn't then blow up, and he went on one. But yeah, I've, I've, there's a scene towards the end of the movie where they are chatting, just idly chatting. It's not like the kind of frantic, slightly Harry-sounding team radio that you hear on F1 where Lewis Hamilton's talking to his team about this tyre strategy or in the fact that he's not sure he can get to the end of the race or anything like that. This is calm conversation. While we're on the subject of radios, they allow anyone on the radio channel. Girlfriends can go on the radio channel. Rivals' girlfriends can go on the radio channel. Everyone's got a headset and they're all allowed to talk to the drivers. No one sort of wanders in and goes, you, get out of here. It's <laughs> it's another plot device, like the Basil Exposition commentators, to try and fill in the gaps of a fairly poor script. Isn't there one scene as well where there's some sort of sponsor reception and the the young guy whose name I've already forgotten... Jimmy Bly. Sorry, wait. Jimmy Bly. Rookie sensation, Jimmy Bly. <laughs> where he has a bit of a strop and just jumps in a car that's on a display stand. Yes, I was coming to this. tuxedo. I was coming to this. So this might be the silliest scene in a movie that is full of very silly scenes. Like Chris says, they're at some kind of sponsor event and this is where the whole soap opera plot comes into where rookie sensation Jimmy Bly has been dating Bo Brandenburg's ex-fiancé because having a fiancé was a distraction for the Teutonic racing driver and so he got rid of all distractions so he could focus on winning. And then he stopped winning because he kind of missed his fiancé. And so she then went off and dated rookie sensation Jimmy Bly for reasons that I don't really understand. Anyway, she decides to get back with uh, the Teutonic driver master and she tells Jimmy Bly at this party... He gets in a huff, and this party, I think, is for the launch of next year's racing cars, which happen to be on display with fuel and a starter motor. And so he runs off, grabs one of these cars from display, jumps in it, starts it, and drives off. In a tuxedo. In a tuxedo, onto the streets of Chicago. He's then chased by Sylvester Stallone, who finds another car, which is also mysteriously fueled and with a starter motor, <laughs> jumps in, starts it, and drives off after him. And then you get what is actually quite an exciting scene of racing cars driving on actual streets. There is a couple of slightly dodgy CG, but there's you know sparks from under trays, and they're weaving in and out of traffic, and there's a big speed differential for some of the shots. There's a couple of bizarre sort of what are meant to be comedy moments where they drive past a news cellar and the you know the force of the air coming off the back of the car is supposed to blow all these magazines off but that's not helped by the shot of the car driving past at 30 miles an hour and then cut to newsstand man being hit by a force 10 gale (laughs) that stuff doesn't work but some of the stuff is great although someone pointed out that they start the chase in chicago and somehow end up in toronto 
with some very obvious Toronto landmarks. If you've ever been to the city, you will notice it immediately. So there's a bit of geographical license there. But honestly, of all the scenes in the movie, that's probably the one that will get racers' goats the most because race cars don't have starters. They really don't. The engines won't even turn over. They need to be warmed before the pistons will even move in them. I know. Now, we are proper nerds, and we know this stuff, and I know that the general moving boot going public don't, but it's just so stupid. Yes, it's bobbins. Um, Yeah, my notes on this actually have what the actual F. (laughs) (laughs) So there's an awful lot of bad stuff in this movie that will probably get a lot of people to turn off. But... I'm going to go back in my notebook. There is some good stuff. I really like... They have a a sort of first-person view of the driver racing on the track, and they worked quite hard to try and give an impression of the tunnel vision you get when you drive quickly. And they're blurring out the stuff at at the periphery of the screen and trying to show how the driver's focus shifts around a corner. So as you're coming around a corner, the tunnel turns with you. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting visual that they could have done a lot more with and they don't. They use it one other time when they're racing in the rain and they're showing the sort of slow motion raindrops coming and splatting against the driver's visor. And and it's a really interesting concept that could have, in a different movie, worked really well to show driver's point of view. Um, And I really, really enjoy a lot of the, like I say, the stuff at the where they do use genuine champ car drivers. There's a really cool montage towards the end, just before the, the, the final race of the season, where they sort of go into slow-mo and they put some cool music over the top and you get to see lots of genuine racing drivers from the era like Juan Pablo Montoya, uh, Max Pappis. There's a bunch of Jimmy them. Vassa. Jimmy Vassa. yeah, that's right. And there's a whole bunch of them just, I want to say getting ready for a race. I have a feeling when I watched it recently, I think it's all made up rubbish. I'm not sure that any of them actually kiss a picture of their kids and tuck it inside their race suit before they go <laughs> racing. It's a nice thought and it's very cheesy, but I don't think it actually happens. But when I first watched it, I loved that bit for the kind of over the overblown all American cheesiness of it. I I kind of like that. Um and it's just it's real racing drivers and if you know your racing drivers, that kind of adds that level of reality to it that the rest of the movie sadly lacks. They did use a lot of the actual cars i think um three of the racing drivers including montoya did sort of donate or allow the use of their helmet liveries to the lead stars Mm. so that you got that verisimilitude they do use some indie light cars in some of the stunts which is glaringly obvious because the body shape is totally different the nose shape is completely different and it really it's really jarring once you've seen it once you can't unsee it um and some of the shots of the racing that aren't from genuine racing are like i say much like that shot on this on the um on the road the cars look slow they look too slow and i know that indycar are not smothered in the kind of downforce that modern f1 has that allows them to take corners at insane speeds but they're fast cars and they contrive to make them look slow to kind of sum up driven is one of those things that if it comes on the television i think you should watch it i think you should watch it maybe pause it on and then fast forward through some of the crappy bits while you make a (laughs) cup of tea there's there's interesting stuff there i don't want to say good but there's there's interesting stuff there but it is objectively one of the worst racing movies of all time because of its because of its inability to to tell a, a, an interesting story and because of the extreme license taken with you know realism and 
very little respect seemed to be paid to trying to tell a good story with racing cars. Mm. There was a lot of, we've got this, let's put this in the film, we've got that, we've got a camera car out on track, let's just cram all of that in. And the first time we see Sylvester Sloane and Burt Reynolds together, you've already mentioned the, the Williams reference, but then just in case you didn't get it, Sylvester Sloane is wearing a Winfield cap. So he is. The, the Williams era, yeah. But one, what I really do like, though, is where they have got the driver's images, they've modified them in some subtle way to make them into a different character. So you've got... Um, Bo Brandenburg is in Mark Blundell's race suit and helmet. And on the top of Mark's helmet is a big MB, which they subtly changed to being BB on Bo Brandenburg's helmet. And there's just all these little Easter eggs where you, apart from slow motions of, you know, JPM putting his race suit on in soft, uh, soft focus, there's a lot of little little uh, nuggets you can get. There's another driver. Oh, what's the other driver called? There's one who's an amalgam of um, Roberto Moreno and somebody else. They just call him Memo. I can't remember his surname. It's Memo. Oh, that, that was it. It's Memo Gidley. That's right. And Roberto Moreno and became Memo Moreno. Try saying that three be... times when you're pissed. <laughs> you think, you know, I did look at that thing. Is somebody doing that for a joke? Apparently his kind of... character was supposed to be sort of based with a teeny bit on Senna. Um, really? Well, this is it. Sylvester Stallone abandoned a Senna biopic to make Driven. Probably because he couldn't get the buy-in of the Senna family. And in all honesty, there's no real point making a Senna movie now because the Senna documentary probably did as good a job as any at telling the Senna story. And they did it with real footage. So, yeah, that's a, that's a thing. Back in 97, Sylvester Sly was trying to get a Senna biopic off the ground. And I know that at one point, Antonio Banderas was rumoured to be playing Senna, which at that time wouldn't have been a bad shout. He'd, yeah. have, he'd have pulled that yeah. off. There's a resemblance there. There's a kind of... He'd have been able to make that work. But for whatever reason, that was never made. And he moved on to make Driven. Can you imagine Sylvester Sloan doing the voiceover on a Senna biopic? God, no. <laughs> mumbling through into Lagos and God knows what else. Interestingly, um, one of the other casting things I found out was that the role of Jimmy Bly, which is played by an actor called Kit Perdue, who does a reasonable job with a very thin character, was originally earmarked for none other than Leonardo DiCaprio. Really? Which... You mean you mean Formula E team owner Leonardo DiCaprio? Ah, well, he does like motorsport and he does turn up at the races. But back in, well, this would have been early 2000, he'd have been coming off Titanic and, you know, still at that heartthrob stage. But I think he has a, a cannier eye for a script. And so I think a lot of the people in this were either unknowns or first timers or journeyman actors or Sylvester Stallone. But there you have it. Um, Driven, a movie where people climb into racing cars that don't have a manual gearbox and then press on the clutch and change gear with the manual gearbox and then use the paddles a little bit later on. That's all you need to know about this movie. There we go. So I'm going to bring to the table uh, Need for Speed, the film adaptation of the video game, and that's always a high watermark for success. Going into this, I will say I knew nothing about the film. I've never played the video game. I know nothing about the video game. And frankly, after watching this film, I have no intention of ever watching the video game. 
This film follows the story of Toby Marshall, who, through a long and expositious opening sequence, you realise was an up-and-coming racing driver who his dad passed away and he took over the family business of running a garage and put behind him dreams of, of racing success. The garage isn't doing very well, so he goes out and to earn a bit of money will enter these street races. That money goes to keeping the garage afloat, but then it takes a kind of Blues Brothers twist of he's won some money from a race, that's enough to pay off the bank who are knocking at the door for that month's mortgage, but where's the next month coming from? And the next, and the next. And so to make some money, he takes a job from Dino Brewster, who's played by Dominic Cooper. This involves taking the Mustang that Ford and Carroll Shelby were working on, so the story goes, when Carroll Shelby died, restoring it, and they will get a cut of the money when it sells, and it's going to be a multi-million dollar car. They do that, they work for, uh, for Dino, they have a bit of a spat, and he... To, to offer an olive branch, he invites them over to his house, flips open these garages, and there's three identical Koenigsegg Agiras in his garage, and he says, right, pick one of the three, and we'll go and race. And if you win, you get all the money, and if you lose, I get your cut. So they do. And from there, things happen. I'm not going to spoil the plot in case for some reason you might ever want to watch it, but then a pivotal event happens. For some reason, Toby goes to jail... It's never explained exactly why. And when he comes out, he's going to wreak his revenge and he's going to get back into it by entering the biggest of these races of them all. And the process of doing that, he basically has to go back, he has to get this Mustang that his shop has built that has 900 horsepower, can do over 230 miles an hour, as tested at Road America. (laughs) Road Atlanta. (laughs) Road Atlanta, sorry. That's it. And he goes on a... Big cross-country trip over about 48 hours, no, 45 hours, coast to coast. Then he'll enter this race, which the name of which has now escaped me. It's called... I had to look up... I can do this for you. Wait, 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 wait. Right. We'll we'll have to spell it, because I had to look it up, how it's actually spelled. Go on, you do it. De Leon. De Leon. That's it. Which I took as daily, as in every day, and own... But then you look it up and it's D-E space L-E-O-N for some reason. So the Daily Own. To get access into this race, you have to convince this overseer called the Monarch, who's brilliantly played by Michael Keaton, that you are eligible, you are, you are up to it, you're qualified, and winner takes all the cars. Now, I won't go into, into the outcome for reasons I will come, come to in a minute, but this film is just awful on a number of levels and i think there is a very good reason if you look at the credits the director the uh he was also a producer editor is a an edit and editor yep. yes and editor was a guy called oh god i'm being scott really war bad i don't know how you scott war yeah no yeah, scott war yeah now if you look at scott war's credits on imdb as we are prone to do on this uh, on this podcast he has a lot of credits as a stuntman a stunt performer stunt director and he's basically gone from there into directing films so you have a film that is being shot and edited by a stuntman and my god does that show 
the opening probably half an hour, a lot of it takes place at night, and it is lit to within an inch of its life. There are whole sections of street that turn green. There are whole sections of street that are yellow. It is just so Michael Bay-esque, but without any sort of reality filter. It's almost like the Golden Hour bits of Top Gun, where they just sort of crank every filter up and up and up. It's super sharp. It's super saturated. All the the camera work is really it's actually really really good they seem to be having a lot of what looked like gopro footage or something like that of basically disposable cameras getting smashed in actual real shunts but it very quickly registers that there are a lot of fundamental issues with this for a start this street race whereas in fast and the furious it would be a quarter mile it would be a bit of road between streetlights or whatever for some reason, somehow, they seem to manage to shut down half of a city. They have a plane in the air. Toby has a support crew with this sort of mobile rig and radios and headsets and all that sort of thing. And for all of this effort, he wins $5,000. And then they start talking. And he has this really quiet, beaten-down persona, which kind of makes sense in terms of his story... But he's supposed to be the leader of this gang, and he's he's not the quiet one. He's not like Han from Tokyo Drift, who sort of sits back and just is there when people need him. He has this kind of brooding quality of kind of... He's almost like Christy Mabel's Batman, but without the mystery. Mixed with a kind of Chandler Bing from Friends, but high on meth. And... He just broods, and he does this thing where he looks down a lot, and he looks out, like, just under his eyebrows. And he doesn't say much, and he kind of mumbles. And then he starts talking to Dino Brewster, who's played by Dominic Cooper, which is the thinnest, most cliched, baddie character you can imagine. There's no depth to him, there's no why, there's no logic. It's just this thin, moustache-twirling veneer of... Ha-ha, I am awful. I will do an awful thing now. Ha, look upon my wealth. Aren't I awful? It's just lazy, and it lacks any depth. And in Toby's crew, we've got Rami Malek, who, rather than being the kind of the quiet, nerdy guy you might know from Mr. Robot, is this enormous extrovert who likes surfing on top of trucks and taking all his clothes off when he tells his boss where to stick it. It, it just makes no sense as a group of people. And then, in the middle of this, is Imogen Poots, who, thank God, actually has lines where she just basically bursts the bubble of what's going on. He has this bit, uh, Toby has this bit where he's talking on the radio to his crew, and it's, it's all sort of, I've got you at your 20, right, we're going to go redneck down to uh, Record Breaker, and we've got a bingo, we need a grasshopper, and we've got all this sort of thing. And she just sits there next to him going, why didn't you just say where you were going? Like, why you just say this to sound cool, don't you? And he kind of blushes and goes quiet. It's almost like the character that Emily Blunt plays in Devil Wears Devil Wears Prada has been dropped into an action film. And it's this one person in the middle kind of going, wait a minute, this is nonsense. And she has none of the cliched lines. She's this one real person in this whole mess. The other thing I have to mention, when they do these races, I don't know why, when they're driving on the highway, they're wearing seatbelts. 
as soon as they start racing, no seatbelts. And they also do that thing where they're obviously sitting in a car, and Dominic Cooper is particularly bad for this. He makes a face as though he's never driven a car before while being constipated. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> yeah, I know he, he, can't, he can't just relax and drive a car. You know, we both know that classic racing driver thing. If you see a racing driver, absolutely a ten-tenth, all the effort is in their eyes and it's in their hands and everything else is just relaxed. And they're kind of driving really fast. Oh, yeah, click on the gear. Although... I was reading, again, reading through some of the trivia bits on IMDb. They actually did a lot of their own stunt driving. They did a lot of... The actors themselves actually had training and they went off and they did stunts. And Not quite. I can, I can interject with this. Yes, some of them did. Imogen Poots doesn't even have a driving licence. <laughs> Fair enough. She doesn't do a great deal of the driving. She spends a lot of time in the passenger seat. Uh, but yeah, not a driving licence. Aaron Paul is the known petrol head. Which I suspect is one of the reasons why he took this job. He may have lived to regret that, but he he likes his American muscle. He loves cars. You know, he's been on Top Gear doing the um, star in a reasonably nice car back in the day. So I can see why he's in it, and I can absolutely see that him doing his own stunts is, would be a thing. The um, the directors and the stunt team are on record as saying he was really good, and if he doesn't want to be an actor, he can be a stunt driver. There's. The, there was a big push on this for real stunts. And the final race, which is basically a cross-country illegal road race, has in it a Bugatti, it has a McLaren P1, it has obviously the Koenigsegg. And almost all of these, particularly for the driving sequences, were just bodies on chassis of something else. So they could write off these cars with abandon and not be trashing multi-million pound um, supercars. The Again, it just comes back to this thing of they did so much right, but then any car, as soon as it hits a barrier, bursts into flames. Anything that rolls over has to do a massive somersault. And it's just overblown bobbins. The fact that they do it for real is impressive, but it's just bad and even the attempts at narrative and character development there are some there are some shocking moments there are some good bits of dialogue there are some bits where it works but as a whole as a whole thing god knows how they got the budget to do need for speed 2 because it wasn't a big box office success this it made money though that's the thing it's not like driven <sighs> i forgot to mention the driven flopped hard it lost a lot of money. It it didn't get close to making its money back. Whereas, as I understand it, this made its money back and then some going with the global box office. And that's yeah. why they got the green light for a sequel. I don't think it did particularly well in domestic, so in, in the US, but I think abroad and probably China, mm. it made its money back. So I think budget was in the like 60, 70 million-ish. And this it was 66 and it made measurement. back more than 200 million so even taking into account even if you double that 60 for marketing and promotion and all that kind of thing it's still well into the black and not probably not enough that they wanted to be they wanted another fast and furious franchise they really did they failed mm. but they made enough money that they could make a director streaming it's not director video anymore is it it's director streaming sequel <laughs> or at least i know that there was one green lit i don't know if that's actually been made and i've certainly haven't seen it no 
And it was it's actually quite telling that having watched this yesterday in preparation for, for this recording, I saw a bit of Tokyo Drift um, as part of the Car Fiction video that we mentioned earlier. And even in just one scene in Tokyo Drift, there is character, there is empathy, there is a bit of exposition, there's all of this stuff that just gives it heart and gives it warmth. And what I think is most frustrating with Need for Speed is that there is a good idea in here, but there just needs to be so much polishing, the casting needs to be changed. The idea that you have Michael Keaton as this overseer, almost like Christoph from The Truman Show, who has this enormous influence but never ever leaves this one office. He can be narrator, he can be a source of exposition, he can do all of these things, but he can he brings with it, a lot of his stuff is delivered through one camera, it's through a webcam, essentially. And he can bring this vibrance and personality, and he, he kind of has that slightly deranged millionaire, billionaire, who can just throw these things together. And I must admit, I thought, give me more of that. He's in on the joke, I think, very much. He's in on it and he goes with it and he goes big. And like I say, like you say, that really works. That, for all that it's silly, it works because he commits to it. I get the feeling that Aaron Paul, who is a tremendous actor, he's a tremendous actor. He's most well known for Breaking Bad and he's brilliant in that, but he's been great in other things as well. I don't know if he was envisaging a different movie and he's acting as if he's in the movie he saw in his head but it's not the movie that was on the page and I think that's where a lot of that brooding beaten down character that character note would have worked really well in a different movie with the same plot but a different movie from a different filmmaker that would have worked really well I don't have as much of a problem I think as you with with his character and even his performance I kind of buy it he's being cool he's taking a Steve McQueen archetype um and he does warm up later in the movie, but it's, yes. uh, it's certainly at the start. I can absolutely see your point that you do just wish he'd speak up a bit and enunciate properly. <laughs> it's the, it is the Batman problem. Stand up straight, it's boy. Just... <laughs> <laughs> and more than that, when they, one of the first scenes is when they go to the drive-in, which is another myriad of colours and lights and all this sort of stuff, they're showing bullet on the screen. And if you are going to make a film where you show another film in it, you're kind of reminding all the audience that, like, remember Bullet, how good that was? Well, welcome to Need for Speed. Yeah, it's they've also chosen the Bullet car, and that was a specific uh, choice by Scott Warb. He is a huge car nut, clearly, mm. um, a huge fan of American muscle, Mustangs and Corvettes, and he chose a Mustang because there's a Mustang in Bullet. And... I rewatched this as well in preparation for this podcast, and I like this more than I like Driven. I used to think I like Driven quite a lot, but I rewatched that and realized it is truly terrible. <laughs> I like this for a lot of the reasons I like the bits in Driven, though. There's some awesome car cinematography, really yes. stunning work with tracking cameras and bolt-on rigs and, and you name it. They've got some top draw driver talent it's the same names that crop up again and again um tanner faust reese millen paul dallenbach tanner faust i think did a lot of the the hero drifts for the the million dollar mustang that they're 
chasing across America. Mm. And you can, like you say, because the director is an ex-stuntman and wants to show the stunts and show this is all for real, he chooses long shots that show drifts and you can see the rear wheels locking as they pull the handbrake and then spinning up as they boot the throttle. And it, for a petrol head, it's glorious watching genuine car control on display. But for a movie, it gets a bit boring. You know, the, the act of going around a corner and weaving through traffic seems to take five minutes of shots and shots and shots because you <laughs> want to show that your stunt guys did it for real and maybe your actors did some of it for real too. Well, that's wonderful, but that's not really propelling the story forward. No. And it just seems overindulgent. Now, Scott War was chosen for this by Steven Spielberg. Who also chose Aaron Paul. Well, yeah, and... Like Aaron Paul's a great actor and Scott Wall might be a, a good director, but not with this material and not on the face of this. Stuntmen can make great directors. Look at the John Wick movies. Look at what they've gone on to do. The directors of John Wick then went their separate ways to make other movies, other John Wick sequels, um, Atomic Blonde and Hobson Shaw. That's directed by David Leach, <laughs> who's uh, you know one of the two that did the original John Wick. They're both stuntmen. They had an idea of doing you know, clear long takes to show the action of stuntmen and the skill of them at work. That works for fight scenes where you can choreograph it all and, and rehearse it time and again. But I don't think it works for cars. Even, you know, the, the gold standard for me of how to shoot a car going fast is still Top Gear. Go back and watch any review of any fast car on Top Gear. They're in a pokey aerodrome in rainy grey Britain <laughs> and they make it look like a million dollars every time. If it's pouring with rain, then the rain is going slowly and backwards while the car goes forwards. They just make it work with creativity and there's no creativity on show here. It's it's all long wide shots to show off the stuntmen doing their thing. There is good stuff. I wrote a bunch of things down again because it seems to be the only way I can remember things. I want that sun-dappled garage that they start with. You know, the, 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 these guys and their, their workshop where they make this million-dollar Mustang. It's, yes. it's, it's all proper old 1950s Americana with two petrol pumps outside and golden lights streaming through the fuzzed-up windows. I want that garage to put my car in and to be the man cave and all that kind of thing. The sound work. The sound work in this is amazing. You've got a decent surround sound system with a subwoofer. They must have spent months getting these recordings right. The cars sound incredible. The sound of that Mustang is astonishing. I don't know if it's real or if it's a mix of cars, but it sounds brutal. And I can't help but grin when I hear it, even though I know that the scene it's in is crap. I'm still grinning at the sound of it because I'm a petrol head and I can't get it, you know, can't get away from that. The bad stuff, I think Chris has probably already touched on. Um, the actors are all, by and large, really talented people. One of them's just won an Oscar for playing Freddie Mercury. And yet, they're not showing up for this. And I think that's again, goes down to the direction. Even if you had a cruddy story, you can make that work with game actors and a director who's willing to be creative. Michael Bay did it with Bad Boys. Bad Boys famously had no script at all. Will Smith and Martin Lawrence just made it up on the spot. And wow. you, you could have done something like this here. You could have allowed the actors to inject a bit more personality into it, do a bit more improvisation to try and get it going. And it feels like they didn't. Um, 
Imogen Poots' character is supposed to be a car expert. She's brought on to appraise this million-dollar Mustang and guarantee that it's worth the money that the car collector pays for it. And yet the moment you put her in the passenger seat of a car, she's terrified. I, I don't get it. I, 230 miles an hour in a Mustang. Yeah, really? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> it may be, even with 900 horsepower, but it'll probably take off first. <laughs> Speaking of, of Imogen Poots, I've just remembered... There's the scene where the young mechanic has met this pretty English blonde at a at a party, and he's trying to curry favour with her. And one of the lines that he uses is, "We love Piers Morgan." <laughs> yeah, that sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> that's that's that sounds like just like a, an American saying something, going, I, I "Say something about Britain." Well, we love Quick, Piers Morgan. Uh, Harry Potter, cricket, I don't know. <laughs> Tea! Warm beer. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. And maybe, I mean, I know some Americans do love Piers Morden, but I'm not sure very many British people do. So, yeah, that, that line leapt out at me as being a terrible choice. But I still go back and watch this film every now and then. I do fast forward the, the cruddy bits, but there is artistry on display in the driving and in some of the staging that the um there's a, a race with classic cars at the start of that race that chris mentioned where um everyone wins five grand for doing this incredibly dangerous race in classic cars through the streets of this city that looks great and the cars are clearly being driven very hard i really enjoyed that i know that it's totally unrealistic and like chris said it's it's a bit overwrought and overlit but it's still gorgeous and there's moments in that final race with all the million-dollar hypercars that are great too. And I know that they did have access to real versions of the cars, I think, for some hero scenes. Not for any of the, the, mm. the driving scenes, but I think for some of the start stuff. And I remember watching this, looking at the uh, the Lamborghini Sesto Elemento, which is supposed to be all carbon, and looking to spot the joins. If you watch it in 4K, can you see where they've used carbon fibre wrapping paper instead of actual carbon fibre? Not really. There's even stuff where if you watch the cars, particularly when they flip over, the flat bottoms on them suddenly give away because you can see, rather than being nice sculpted bits of carbon, you can kind of see that they're black painted plyboard and the windows are all tinted and stuff. So two bad car movies that we sort of recommend that you avoid, but also recommend that you kind of watch. Maybe only once, maybe only for the car scenes. If you can download them or see them on a streaming service, I think it's worth, certainly Need for Speed, I'd say, watch it once in the right frame of mind, possibly slightly inebriated. Uh, laugh along, <laughs> enjoy some tremendous driving and a very silly plot and very silly crash sequences. But I, I would... I wouldn't warn anyone away from Need for Speed. I think at this stage, I would warn you away from Driven. Hasn't, uh, hasn't aged Has well. Has not aged well. Not at all. So, as a palate cleanser from our, uh, our less than spectacular recommendations, what have you been watching on YouTube since the last episode, Marty? Well, I have a, quite a few things I could put in this segment. Um, I'm going to choose to highlight... A video I saw on YouTube from a channel called Legit Street Cars, which is better than it sounds. Uh, this is a, a guy in America who has a YouTube channel where he seems to buy very leggy German super sedans. So he's got an E55 AMG that has done 400,000 miles and he's been slowly restoring it and seeing what kind of power it makes in the dyno. Um, 
and he's just bought a 400,000 mile BMW E39 M5, which is a dream car of mine. I can't think of a reason why I need one. I don't need to drive long distances in comfort with four people, but I just want one. There are car reasons because it's a great BMW. It's one of the last great completely manual BMW M cars. Um, it was in the BMW driver films way back in the late 90s, which is something I really want to come to in a future episode of the Automovie podcast. But he's just bought a cool car with 400,000 miles on the clock um, that isn't a complete wreck. It works. It sounds great. And he, for one of his videos, took it to his local BMW dealership for a laugh to see what their bill for fixing it and bringing it back up to spec would be. He paid uh, $8,500 for the car. Um, he's a mechanic, train mechanic, so he's quite capable of fixing all the things and diagnosing problems and so on. And he had a pretty good idea of what needed doing on it as he but he took it to the dealer for a laugh to see what they came back came back with um not a spoiler alert to say they come back with a bigger bill than he paid for it seventeen thousand dollars <laughs> wow. to put it back to stock fix things with some really spurious pricing in there um you know things like change the fluid in a thing costs two hundred dollars um i think there's like three thousand dollars for refitting the cats because the the car's on a, an x-pipe and it's been decatted it's a really interesting watch because you get a feel for what a, a main dealer charges for these kinds of things uh you get to see a cool car um and interestingly he takes it to uh carmax which is a kind of car valuation and buying service in the states i'm not sure there's an equivalent of that maybe we buy any car in the uk um yeah it there for evaluation to see what they'd pay for it again just as a laugh and i think it's something like fifteen hundred dollars it's a, it's a fraction of the amount um wow. imagine getting one of those for eight and a half grand i think there is a few out there on uh, on the auction sites but you probably wouldn't want those ones and this one seems like a quite a good one and if you're a mechanic and you can do all the things yourself then more power to you but i'd highly recommend checking out his channel he's also just bought a c63 amg which is in the process of restoring back to stock um there's some really interesting stuff about uh amg engine faults if you have an amg car especially if you have an c63 amg then you may know about some of these faults but he's done a loads of stuff about what goes wrong in these engines, what's good about them, what's bad about them. Highly recommend checking his stuff out. He's a very interesting guy to listen to. And the the stuff where he's actually doing things to the car, as opposed to maybe doing stuff for fun, like taking it to the BMW dealer, the actual process of maintaining and fixing up the cars is pretty interesting. So I'd, I'd check that one out. Excellent. I've gone for an oldie. Well, old in internet terms. It's a video from 2014 from the Red Bull Racing Team called 24 hours behind the scenes preparing for an f1 race weekend red bull racing did a series of these around uh 2014 looking at different aspects of what goes on in the factory between races and it's properly fly on the wall stuff there's another one in the series which is 24 hours after a race weekend and it basically follows christian horner on a monday morning after a grand prix and all the things that he goes through, which is basically meeting, 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 address the team, give a bit of a debrief, meeting, meeting, meeting. You don't sit in on all the meetings, fortunately. Um, but this one is actually with the build-up, so it's all the team's logistics. It's going with the mechanics 
to their house where they get out all their race kit and they talk about what it means to them to be an F1 mechanic and to actually just be in the paddock. And it's not the rarefied atmosphere. It's not the over-glossy, celebrity-driven stuff that you sometimes get on, say, Sky. This one in particular is actually a lot more of the people and it's more at the coalface. And it's I find these things really interesting. And I love that YouTube gives us the ability for you, for F1 teams or other people in the industry to do these really niche videos. And I, I strongly recommend it just as a bit of a, a glimpse into what on the outside seems like quite a rarefied world, but it's actually a largely a logistics-driven engineering company. Yeah, I, it's really interesting that YouTube is now starting to be used by F1 teams. I know this was back in the day and, and Red Bull probably with their media empire, some of the first to adopt it. But I've noticed over the last couple of years, Mercedes um, AMG Petronas F1 or whatever their full name is, um, Mercedes <laughs> have been using it to do their pit wall debrief after every race, which is a really fascinating insight into what went on. They answer fan questions. I suspect they're reasonably carefully curated but they're not afraid to shy away from stuff Uh, that's really cool i really enjoy seeing that and mclaren have kind of really taken to Mm. using social particularly this year because they've got two young drivers who are social media masters particularly lando norris (laughs) and so they've started (laughs) doing loads of jokey videos and daft memes and all sorts of stuff that it feels like formula one is starting to finally get the hang of social media and online video so, yeah, it's it's great to see more content from a sport that was previously very inaccessible. And that's it for this episode. If you think we've got it right or got it wrong, share your thoughts and your opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod, on our AutoMoviePodcast Facebook page, or email, email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. Oh, please, please tell us if you did actually enjoy Driven. I found some reviews on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes that if people were like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is brilliant. You're all wrong.